Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm talking with David Garnowski. David is the host of the most electrifying show in radio, A Neighbor's Choice, which is a show I've been listening to quite a bit lately. David focuses on looking at things through in society through the lens of the Jesus personhood revolution. David, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me today. So I've been enjoying your show lately. Tell us a little bit more about it. It's a radio show, but it's also a podcast, and it's also on uh, video streaming services. Tell me a little bit more about A Neighbor's Choice. It's called A Neighbor's Choice, and uh, we've been doing it for about three years. Um, we, you know, I did a podcast before that for several years, so it's a little longer than three years, but on, on FM and AM, it's been three years or so, and uh, three and a half, I guess, now. And um, and uh, we, we talk about uh, current events and politics and physics and nutrition, science and economics. Mondays, I have Jeff Deist fill in for me as a special co-host uh, or guest host. He's the president of the Mises Institute, and he's a true delight to have on as a as a as a powerhouse for economics, you know he can bring on the the great um, you know talent lineup that the Mises Institute has to teach our audience about how markets work, how money works, how the economy works, how boom bust cycle works. Um, Thursdays we do science in you with physicist Doctor Yu, who's my co-host. He's um, the the discoverer of a grand unified theory of physics, which is just mind-blowing in its simplicity and its scope of explanation for so many different uh, anomalies that are um, just not really explained well by the current glued-together standard model plus quantum plus relativity just doesn't fit well to me uh, when you look at his theory in comparison. And we we, uh, oftentimes will interview Galileo's and uh, nuclear energy research or uh, we'll interview Galileo's and, you know, cancer cures, um, people who are doing things to really change the frame um, and really get rid of this false dialectic between, well, if it's capitalism, it's all about obscene, obscene profits. And if it's socialism, it's all about wasteful government, feel good feelings. No, that's not at all what we're dealing with. You know, I mean, so many of the solutions that we explore um, would be a free market providing it, but it would be dirt cheap. You know, you look at like a generic drug like azithromycin or ivermectin to deal with, oh, well, we can't talk about that. You should probably censor that word and get you in trouble like my channel was. But well, I'll you, tell you what. You talk about what you want to talk about, and maybe I'll just upload this to Odyssey if, if it gets uh, yeah. into too too much of a fringe area. Yeah, well, it's not fringe. It's the most common prescribed drug in the world, but they don't, you know, want you to talk about it because it hurts people's profits. But um, right. azithromycin um, is also not fringe. It's one of the most common drugs in the world. Everybody takes it. Billions of people use it. Um, but these things are generic drugs, so they don't have a lot of profit margin. But a free market would allow that because a free market doesn't look at intellectual property, you know, as something that needs to be protected with the state. And so... Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, myths surrounding our public discourse, and our show is basically like a MythBusters program, you know. And uh, uh, we also have a Things Hidden podcast, which is our deep dive into anthropology, which is I think what you're more interested in in this discussion. Yeah, I I heard about uh, a guy named 
or a philosopher, historian, sociologist, I'm not sure what you would call him, but his name's Rene Girard, and I've heard you talk about him several times on your podcast, and I, I downloaded one of his books, it was called Violence and the, the Sacred, and I'm interested in learning, and I still don't under, completely understand what he's talking about, but I think that there is some truth there, uh, even though I don't fully understand it. And I wanted to get you on the show because it seems like you have a deeper understanding about Girard and what he was saying in regards to Christianity and this role of uh, violence and scapegoating in society. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in Girard and how you first learned about him. Um, there's about three or four different people that didn't know each other that started referencing him to me all at the same time. And I thought that was a sign I need to take a look at this person. So I started reading his, I read his book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, and um, was blown away at its explanatory power for the power of the Gospels. And uh, had to step away and just rethink a lot about what, um, you know, I had been taught to uh, think about Christianity and rethink of it in a different framework. In some sense, it helped fill in the gaps for things that I'd already had an intuitive understanding of. Um, and um, Rene Girard was an anthropologist from Stanford University, and he taught um, literature. He taught French studies. He taught. He was just a classic old school um, theorist who would want to unify ideas rather than um, compartmentalize everything, like you know, deconstruct everything into a granular focus. He wants to look at how things emerge, patterns emerge throughout literature and mythology and um, rituals, taboos. And so he's what, you know, they, they categorize his work as philosophic anthropology, philosophical anthropology, in the sense that he wasn't going out and doing too much field work himself. He wasn't going to live amongst the, certain tribes and study the way they use spoons and so forth. He was looking at bigger pictures, broader pictures of world history and seeing the patterns that emerged um, that made mythology kind of follow a similar pattern, which he thought was a cover-up for murder. You know, he looks at the different myth. He, lo he would look at the different myths and he would see that they all have a similar pattern in which, you know, um, oftentimes the creation stories start with chaos. And so we think that those stories are just talking about because we're a modern, we, because we have a modern frame of thinking about things, we think, okay, so this is their fanciful news report for how the world was created. But that's not necessarily what's being communicated in a lot of those creation myths. Um, they're starting in chaos, which presumes that there's something already there. And the chaos is actually just social chaos. And out of that chaos, a god would, you know, be sacrificed or kill another god, and then order and differentiation would be established. Like, literally, you'll read myths where the gods, you know, this the nose of the god makes this type of tribe, and the ears of the God made the rivers and the, you know, the, you know, and you're thinking, what is this? They're chopping up a God and it's making different things. It's providing rain and all these things and differentiation. It's these, these are just symbolic representations of what Gerard found to be a common form of uh, creating cohesion in ancient society in archaic society before that 
which was uh, what he called the scapegoat mechanism, finding a common enemy to expel, to create unity when communities are in a tight bind of lack of resources or tensions are running high. So it all starts with mimetic theory is what he first started with his book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, which was a look at Western literature. Are you more interested in the kind of interpersonal day-to-day human interactions about mimetic theory or the scapegoating and all that? Which part are you more interested in or maybe all of it? You know, I'm interested in all of it. So maybe we'll have to have you back on another episode, but you know what the thing, I think the reason that I got so interested in learning more about Gerard from you is because this idea of scapegoating, we've seen it so much in the past two years. At least I have, you've got Tony Fauci going on TV and he's, he says that he's, you know, he's a atheist or something and he, he doesn't believe in God, but he does believe in the science. In fact, he is the science and he's going to scapegoat anyone who's not the science and who won't take uh, a medical product that he endorses. And uh, the, this idea of scapegoating others and, and the, the idea that we think we're so modern, but yet we're not modern. We just see the same uh, structures or scapegoating playing over and over again throughout history. And, and what I've heard you say is that Christ allows us to look at the world in a different way and that something very unique happened with Christ where he was inverted that idea of the scapegoat and, and challenges us to take a different approach. Right. Can right. you can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, well, you have these, you know, the, um, the there's a lot of God stories and mythologies where there's a dying and rising Savior that saves the community through death and resurrection. Um, and so those are all kind of partial pictures for what was going to happen with Jesus' story in which basically Jesus came into a society that was still operating on the same logic of sacrificing one for the greater good, and they believed that the person they were sacrificing was deserving of blame and being killed or murdered or banished. And what he did was he exposed that that was a lie, and that's that was the lie that was the founding myth of all society. The idea that one person or one group of people should be blamed and is guilty of the sins of a community whenever there's a time of crisis, like a plague, like a disease. And so what you saw with Fauci is just kind of a reversion back to the way of the old the old patterns of humans, which is, you know, there's a plague and people are scared. They don't want to die. And and then somebody exploits that fear and tells them, you know, these are the things you need to do. These are the taboos and rituals you need to do to stay clean and safe and healthy. And if you don't do those things, then you're an enemy and you're dirty and you're unclean and you're less than human. This has been doing, they've been doing this for thousands of years. And so it's a reversion to paganism. It's a kind of a neo-paganism. Of course, it's done in the name of sensitivity to victims because Jesus in Christianity brought in that kind of sensitivity to victims into history that wasn't there prior to the the arrival of the gospel stories in history. You know, you didn't have to, in the old days, you didn't have to, you didn't have to pretend to be on the side of the underdog and the victim to demand sacrifice. 
I mean, they would say, yes, we're going to do sacrifice to avert catastrophe, but it wasn't with this brand of we just really, really, really want to protect the most vulnerable. That wasn't really the case back in the ancient times and archaic times. Um, but Jesus' infection into our Western tradition has made it so that people who want to return to that type of sacrificial mechanism of scapegoating a group to create peace and unanimity amongst the group that's persecuting them, they have to do so in the name of victims. They have to do so in the name of martyrs. We have to ban the, you know, unvaccinated because we have to protect the babies and children and grandma and, you know, whatever. We have to lock down and destroy businesses and destroy people's businesses because we have to save the vulnerable from being sick. You know, and who would who would want to hurt people with the sickness? How could you be so selfish? Why can't you just wear masks? You know, what does that harm anybody? If it reduces at just one percent, why can't you stop being selfish and just follow the crowd? You know, just to protect my grandma or my brother or whatever or child or me. And it's a it's a kind of uh, you know collective hysteria a collective congealing of fear that creates a kind of hive mind attitude. And Rene Girard believed that human beings are mimetic. They desire what their neighbor desires. So they don't really make choices in an autonomous way. They, except for basic needs like food and shelter and mating, those are things that we're programmed to have a drive for from a deeper level. But after those needs, we have a lot of wants, right? And those yeah. wants, we're not sure what to do with those wants. And so we kind of look around to see what other people are wanting or desiring, and we choose what they're choosing. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a mimetic desire in any group. There's a mimetic desire and mimetic conformity amongst libertarians and anarchists. Um. There's mimetic conformity amongst, you know, dissidents and anti-vax and pro-vax and unvaxed and vaccinated and boosters. There's, there's, there's tribes all over the place. And when you have so much undifferentiation within a community, it can create an opportunity for rivalry because that's for it. I mean, I noticed it. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you, put it this way. I was one of the first people talking about Rene Girard in media, you know, and now I see okay. other people popping. I'm like, wait, you know, I feel the very thing that I've always explained, but it's just a natural human feeling, right? If you're the one guy out there talking about Rene Girard in, um, you know, political and economic context, now there's like a 50 or 60 or you can't count. You're like, wait a second. That was my thing. You know, uh, that was yeah. like the Johnny Appleseed. And now, you know, and you, but you're happy in some, if you're, if you're wise about it, you're happy. If you're mimetic to a point of not being self-aware, you know, then you're just, oh, I don't, wow, that was my thing. But if you're wise, like, well, it's a good message. You need people to all copy it as long as they're saying it accurately, right? And the same thing goes for, like, the seed oil topic. I was talking about seed oils before, you know, a lot of people got on the bandwagon. Of course, I wasn't original on that one either. But I was one of the first people in broadcast radio talking about the toxic vegetables. Now it's blown up. 
you know, and I keep saying, man, I'm like the guy that discovers all these indie hits and then they get into a big record deal and we get number one on the billboard. And I'm like, wait a second, I discovered that, Tom, you know, <laughs> but, that, but that's the mimetic pulse, right? That's the mimetic contagion that, I mean, not mimetic contagion, that's the mimetic um, impulse that we feel is like, you know, that was distinguishing me from the crowd of noise of, of everybody squawking and you're like trying to di differentiate yourself, right? We do this all the time, you know, so. That's one of the reasons why, like, the left has so much identity politics, because they are so undifferentiated. They're all squawking on the same framework that they constantly have to create new identity movements to create some semblance of perceived differentiation when everything else they're doing is the same. They're listening to the same late-night shows. They're going to the same social media platforms. They're eating the same uh, plant-based diet. You know, they're thinking the same uh, – um, romantic delusions of uh, autonomous desires. They have the same sexual nihilism. You know, they have all basically the same stuff, but that's why they have to constantly create new um, schisms of victim identification to partition new, you know, unique groups. Like I've never forgot that one story. I'm sure it happens all the time, but I just use it as a reference that there was this LGBT uh, gay pride parade that was taking place in New York City, but they had banned cisgender drag queens from participating because it was considered that they had not been, you know, properly part of the struggle for true uh, LGBTQ rights. Like the trans people didn't want the drag queens who were still cisgendered men at their work to be involved. <laughs> and, and you're like, wait a second, that used to be, and it still is in some cases, you know, part of the avant-garde victim class to be a drag queen. But in that particular group, they wanted to differentiate their victim struggle as as more authentic and more pure than that other group, right? And so they needed to kind of exclude them to maintain their sense of sacred victimization, right? So you see, like, the, the, the group needed to maintain its coalition unity around the mutual exclusion and hatred of a common enemy, even if it was someone who was also perceiving themselves as the victim of a larger group of people, which is the broader society that they think hates them, right? So you see how that's always going to create that same pattern of, like, we need to bind together to exclude, like, look at what's going on with America and Europe. You know, there's a lot of conflicts, but let's bind together to exclude our mutually hated scapegoat Russia. Right? Yeah. Let's put aside yeah. our differences and attempts to, one up each other and exploit each other and take advantage of each other and spy on each other or whatever, because look, we can unify and fight against a common enemy. So that, that desire, but see, we do it more in a conscientious way, but in what Rene Girard was saying is like in the old times and still to this day, it's a lot of times it's unconscious. You don't like, there's a cynical way of setting up a scapegoat, but that's not True. truly to have a scapegoat. To have a scapegoat is to truly believe in the guilt of the person that you're trying to target. You see what I mean? Okay. It's not, it's not okay. a cynical uh, setup, typically. It's something you really believe. You know, So when they're burning the witches, they, a lot of them truly believe that those witches were guilty of what they were being accused of. And there right, could have been right. somebody in the back who had stirred up some of that. Maybe they were a spurned lover of the lady being accused of a witch. So they had another motive. I want to get back at her, right? But but, but for the people to carry out the collective agreed-upon lynching of the victim, most of them get swept up into this person deserves it. 
Yeah. Right? And that what Jesus came into history and said, no, you've been doing this all along, and you've been saying that the gods told you to do it, and I'm here to tell you no God told you to do it. I'm actually like a representation of God. Like God really shows up into human history. is like, you guys have been playing with these toys and making this little, oh, I'm the God here. No, you were, you were lying to yourselves. I'm going to rip it all open for you and show you how your religions have been a, have been a kind of helpful lie for you guys to maintain your order. Instead of fighting each other in all against all chaos, you've agreed to, um, when times are stressed out, target someone who looks different in some arbitrary way and exclude them so that you can, you know, pour all of your wrath and guilt onto that person rather than onto everybody else. That's why Jesus, you know, Caiaphas, the high priest, said it is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. Yeah. And the, and the text says he didn't say that of his own accord. He said that because of the Spirit of God. And that's a revelation showing you that, like, humans wouldn't have thought of that on their own. Only a God could have showed them that this is how it's done. Because typically humans would truly believe that the person that needs to be excluded deserves to be excluded. You see what I mean? Right, right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. When I think about what you said about how the scapegoat went from being something that was truly bad to now Jesus flips it on its head where now we have to view the scapegoat as someone who's the underdog. You know, someone listening to this might think, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with uh, scapegoating those who don't want to wear the mask or take a product because it's going to help grandma or someone else? Uh, what's wrong with that idea? Is, is What's wrong with uh, scapegoating the underdog, as Tony Fauci likes to do? Well, that's a that's a interesting question. Because I'm going to table that question here because I don't think it's it, – I think that we can know why it's wrong. But it's one of those things that even if it wasn't wrong, it's like the good, the bad news, and it's good news and bad news about Christianity. And it depends on how you want to look at it. If you don't believe anything about Christianity, because the reason why we would say it's wrong is because we would say we would adopt a Christian worldview, right? But I know there are people in our audience that are not necessarily Christian. So how can I tell you it's wrong if you don't accept that worldview? You see what I mean? Yeah, so if, yeah. if you're if you're asking me like um you know why was it wrong that Sparta would throw little babies off of a cliff because they were ugly or deformed or too small I mean you'd have to assume a Christian worldview to give me an answer for why that's wrong in my opinion what is the Christian worldview answer that that human life is made in the image of God so it's a temple of God right so it's sacred and therefore you know there are certain things that God expects of his creation because we are made in his same image of um, you know, of respecting yeah. the preciousness of life, the divine spark of, of human beings having volition and free will. And therefore, if God has made, if, if God has free will in his identity, then if he makes us in his image, then we have free will. And therefore, you cannot use coercion to stamp out and subdue someone who doesn't want to do something that's not with their conscience, right? So that gets into a Christian kind of framework. But if we don't want to go there, I don't have to talk about the scapegoat mechanism as whether it's wrong or not. I can just tell you it won't work. See what I mean? So let's yeah. assume that like assume that Christianity is just another religion made up, right? Here's the bad right. news. It's like it's infected us so much that you can't go back to scapegoating creating any of the results that you would want that would be somewhat pos uh, positive. 
Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like the bad news is like you're stuck with this. So you you can either believe it's true and good and righteous, but the idea that you can somehow like stamp it out and make it go away, it's not going to work. That's what the whole gospel thing was about. So it's like if Jesus, Jesus is like this grand strategist in my mind who sets this kind of trap for human history. And it says so in the Bible that the gospels is like it talks about the that the gospels is kind of, the gospel is kind of like a um like a uh, stumbling block, you know, and those who stumble upon it in a, for, in, a, in a field are broken, you know, and those who the stone falls upon are broken to pieces. And it's this idea of, like, you can't, once the gospel infects a society, it's like a acid erosion of the scapegoat mechanism effectively working. It breaks it. Okay. So if yeah. Jesus was just a man, he's like the most ultimate madman who ever existed because he literally launched. I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk like in neutral terms, he launches something like a mind virus to destroy human society's ability to function on controlled violence. He's like an interesting, like the Joker or something. If you want to think of it without Christianity being true and right and from God, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm yeah, trying to I look at so. it just purely from a human, you know, anthropological standpoint. He basically is this person who has destroyed human societies and cultures the way they were done. So this idea that, like, oh, well, why can't we do that? What's wrong with scapegoating people? Well, it's not about what's so wrong. It's about the fact that whenever you do it, it's not going to create unanimity anymore, and so therefore it doesn't contain violence anymore. Does that make sense? So it's wrong yeah. in a pragmatic kind of utilitarian sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The scapegoat See, like, me mechanism just can't work because of right. what he's revealed. Right. So it's like a it's like a it's like a practical consideration or like a utilitarian argument to say it's like, well, whether this was from God or not, this is what we have. Right. And um, societies that are, are Christian influenced long enough, like the longer they're influenced by Christian themes the more they're not able to, like, control violence with selective violence. That's why in societies where the gospel has not been as long penetrating in, it hasn't been steeped in it as long, um, those societies can do some of the old classic scapegoating without having as much chaos. Okay. See, that, okay. see how that works? Yeah. Do you, do you find it strange that the Christian church as a whole over the past two years hasn't taken a stronger stance against some of this assault on individualism and uh, personhood, I guess you might call it. Uh, you know, I, I interviewed someone from the Marcionite Christian Church, and they they view the whole COVID narrative and uh, scapegoating as a pretty much as a scam. Uh, that, that video got taken off of YouTube. It's up on Odyssey or on my podcast if you want to listen to that one. But as a whole, I, I don't see a lot of pushback from the Christian Church. Do you find that strange? First of all, I didn't know there's a Marcionite church still going. That's that's interesting. Um, how do they do that? How do they keep the church going, or or what? Yeah, I'm like yeah, what's their? Uh, well, they're very decentralized. They they advocate meeting in houses and getting together, and you have mm -hmm. a something that you read every Sunday with your fellow uh, Christians, and then uh, they've got a a website where you can post to forums. You get they've got a podcast you can listen to. They've got what they consider the original Christian uh, gospels that you can download from their website. Um, 
so it's a very decentralized approach, and uh, it, it's it's it was interesting to hear. Um, I I don't claim to understand it completely, but they've got a podcast called The Very First Bible that you can subscribe hmm. to, and I'll put in the show notes if you're interested. And I'll also put the interview that I did with one of the deacons at that church. Okay, interesting. Yeah. But but what do you think about the? I, I I'm surprised that there hasn't been more pushback against the COVID narratives type stuff that has been going well, there's on. There's been some, you know. We have seen churches hosting people like Peter McCullough and stuff talking and things like that, but certainly not as robust and coherent in terms of you know ch- protecting the human person. I I was telling someone. Uh, Someone was calling. Someone called me up and said, "I want to join the local Republican Party because I want to make sure that at least one party is totally influenced from the grassroots level to not participate in any war with Russia." Right? And I and, and they and they said, "Would and they were asking? They've never been involved in politics really like that." And they were asking me like, "So what should I use to explain to them in the local meeting?" Um, uh, you know, like why they should be against war with Russia. Should I use the pro-life argument? You know, that mm. they believe in the sacredness of life in the womb, so therefore we should extend that same sacred life perspective to people around the world. And I was like, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to translate. Like, you're more, you're more like, if you want to get them to go along with an anti-war thing, you're more, more likely to get immediate agreement with like an appeal to a conspiracy. <laughs> Like, oh, you know, what you know what they've got going on in Ukraine over there with Fauci or something. You know what I mean? You say that kind of like anti-establishment paranoid conspiracy stuff actually sells for the people seemingly better than like compassionate appeals to human life and, you know, arguments to defend human life even abroad and so forth don't seem to quite sell as well as they should. So I don't know. I mean, it, it certainly – it certainly does in the broader sense of our culture. I do. I do believe that um, because, you know, like if you watch like the Jurassic Park, the Jurassic World series, that, that the last movie they had, they had to decide whether to uh, exterminate all the dinosaurs that they'd resurrected or uh, unleash them into the uh, suburbs of America, you know, and they were so worried about killing those poor innocent dinosaurs that they let them free and roam around in people's backyards, T-Rex, you know. So that just shows yeah. you, like, there's super sensitivity to the plight of victims. I mean, can you imagine, like, 2,000 years ago, people worried about if a T-Rex somehow was found in the middle of an ancient society running <laughs> around, and they're like, oh, we can't kill this thing. I mean, there's only one of them, a couple of them left. We've got to preserve their life. is so precious. Let's let them just, if they eat us, it's okay. I mean, it's what it, it's, they're so precious. They're victims. We can't sacrifice these poor innocent animals. We need to have welfare for them, you know? So, I mean, that's where we're at, you know? That, what, yeah. hap- what, what happened in history to make us that way? Mm. What? I yeah. mean, I say I it's mean, Christianity. What's a better explanation? Right. Yeah, how do you I, go, I don't how know. How do you go from a society that was worldwide basically in the same, it's, you can always point out exceptions, but generally speaking, all societies were functioning on, like, sacrificial hierarchies. And then now... That's the biggest scandal in the world is to not defend victims or, you know, to be perceived as not defending victims. That's why whenever they want to do a war campaign, they always show children being hurt and women being blown up and grandmas being hurt because they can't just say, well, we don't like Russia because they're not playing ball with our financial interest as well as we'd like. They have to say, well, we're just trying to protect little children. 
Interesting. Like, yeah. well, and it's like, well, yeah, it's true. You are trying to protect little children in some cases, but so is Russia because people on the eastern side of Ukraine were being killed. Civilians were being killed for years by the Ukrainian government in the Azov Battalion there. Hmm. But that's like they live in this fantasy world where they it's like a fake Christianity where they present these photos and they say, these are children who were killed by Russia. And you say, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah. And they want to leave it there. And you're like, well, here's a child that was killed by the Ukrainian government. And they're like, that child doesn't exist. Because that child's death doesn't serve the financial interests that run our country. And so it's like they have hijacked Christian aesthetic and weaponized it to smuggle in justification for violence. But that's what I'm saying. So so here's what I, the scapegoat mechanism doesn't work, but there's half-baked attempts to keep it going. And in order to do that, they have to be more and more effectively cloaked in the garb of victim concern. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, like a, a Kermit crab that has to hide under a shell of a victim or something. You know, it's like always scurrying around trying to find a new garb to protect its ability to keep going. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this idea that whether it's good or not, it's not really relevant. I mean, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. It won't work. Like it's not going to unify. It, the The whole purpose of sacrifice is to unite a group. And yes, some of the liberals are united in their hatred of conservatives, but it's always fracturing, and it's always leading to more squabbles because there's so much dissent, and there's so many people who are like, "Well, I'm not really pro conservative, but I don't really realize why we got to treat them that bad." And so there's like, you can't create that kind of unanimity that we have all agreed that this was a monster. You know, the closest we get to that in modern history is like Hitler. You know, he's like, he's like the founding monster of the current world order that we're in. Right? Yeah. An almost near agreed unanimity that he was the villain of all villains. Now you listen to conservatives and see it's not unanimous because conservatives say, well, Stalin and Chairman Mao and those guys were just as bad or worse. So it's not even unanimous, even with Hitler about who is the worst monster of all time. Because some would say what a heinous thing it was that we were united with Stalin when he, with the things that they were doing to rape and pillage German citizens and children and stuff was heinous beyond, beyond comprehension. And, yeah. and you know, you're picking which, which authoritarian mass murder are we going to work with? That's not a story that sells well to the imagination of people who believe that they are justified in the violent acts that they do, right? So that's what myth functions as. It's like you have to contain violence, and the myth is what we tell ourselves down through the ages for why we must sacrifice some for the greater good. And what the gospel is is it looks like myth, but it inverts it. And it's a gritty, realistic portrayal of the sausage-making of mythic violence so that you can see how it's made. And once you see how it's made, you don't want to eat that anymore. And then you still try to eat it because you try to trick yourself into believing that this new product on the market is not made the same way as the old one was made, but it actually is. And so people are constantly eating new versions of sacrificial violence 
and telling themselves, mm, this is good and, and just and right that we persecute these unvaccinated people. Mm, this is good that we crush every Russian and ban Tchaikovsky and music and all that. You know, ooh, this is so right and good. And there's something about that chewing that taste that's like, no, this, this tastes like the old garbage trash that we know is wrong and doesn't work. So that's what the God, that's what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus basically broke the state and all of its powers. He's the ultimate <laughs> political strategist, you know. And so it's a miracle. If he was just a man, it's more miraculous <laughs> that he did all this in history. And you're like, well, it hasn't spread to everywhere on the earth universally quite to the same degree. That's true, but give it time. Give it time because you can look at people like Papua New Guinea, you know, where they were isolated away from the gospel, relatively speaking, kind of like frozen in amber back to the sacred space of the old days. And that's why my friend Monica Paulus had to flee that place because they were trying to burn her alive as a witch just a few years ago. Mm. You know, so they were still doing the scapegoat mechanism. They didn't have to pretend like Monica Paulus was Hitler. They just said that. She yawned wrong or something, and therefore she caused the death of a child in the village. So they did use a little bit of victim concern. And I'm not, say, I'm not, I'm not saying that ancient societies never used the plight for victims to justify some of their killings, but to the degree in which we emphasize the victim and the underdog as sacred is a, is a uniquely modern and Christian inheritance. You know, the, you know, the only, ancient society, if you had a disabled person, it was because they were cursed by God. Right. right, you know, it, what nowadays if it's a disabled person, it's just, you know you you give them the best seat in the theater, the best seat in the parking lot. Yeah, in the old days, you know, you'd be in the farthest parking lot space if they had parking lots back then. If you were handicapped, you know. Today, yeah, so we, we make space for those who are injured and hurt. Does does the this does this idea extend to anyone uh, in the Western world, uh, atheists included, or does this particularly animate your life and change the way you view the world specifically because you are a Christ follower. Say the first part of the question again. Does, does this idea, it, it can't, I mean, could an atheist b believe in this as well and see the mimetic desires and the scapegoating going on? Or is there something specifically about uh, being a Christ follower that helps you understand this in a deeper way? Well, yeah, like, so, yeah, you can see it as an atheist because you're you're swimming in the fishbowl created by Jesus, right? Or like you're in his fishbowl or his sandbox or whatever. So you're in his aftermath of what he did. And the thing about Jesus' movement is the more it's excluded, the more it destroys the society. Like the more you scapegoat Jesus, the more it destroys you. So societies kind of can extinguish themselves by their rejection of the gospel in some sense. Um, because it turns into undifferentiated chaos and envy and inter internecine conflict between each other. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, you can see this as an atheist. It's like, it's like what what Jesus did with Christianity is like what Martin Luther King did for civil rights movement for African Americans. You don't have to believe that Martin Luther King did what he did to benefit from the effects of what he did as a young black person in America today. You see what I mean? 
Yeah. Yeah. You don't tell a young black person, like, you don't get to have the benefits of his movement until you believe that he existed and that he did these certain things and he accomplished these acts. And then if you believe that with all your heart, then it's afforded to you that you can drink from the same fountain as anybody else. See, see what I mean? So that's yeah. what I'm trying to say is like Christianity and Jesus, you're in it, whether you like it or not. You're in an objectively changed world, whether you believe in him as the savior of the world or not. Now, when you ask me, well, how do you, like, what does it mean to be, what's the benefit of following Jesus, right? Well, it's the benefit of a lot, but on this matter of like society, that's how you save the world is you follow Jesus. So, like, Jesus came to save the world. Now, what were you taught that meant, probably, in your childhood? Uh, save the world from eternal damnation. But that was taught more like a spiritual thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, you, how does Jesus actually save the world? Are you asking? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the basic Sunday school story is that he, he bridged the gap between uh, God and humanity by sacrificing himself um, and created a bridge. So that's true. But like what I'm saying is they typically make it seem like, well, his act of salvation is based upon you believing certain principles and things about what he did. And if you believe those certain things about what he did, then its effect happens on you. Right. Mm -hmm. Then you're safe. Right. And I'm saying that, like, there may be we can talk about that another time. But what's really in bigger picture view of what I see him when he saved the world is. It's a way in which he's liberated us from the scapegoat mechanism and allowed the human species to be able to solve things nonviolently and creatively without destroying each other. OK. OK. See? Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense. An atheist could be a Christian in the sense of imitating Jesus's project of nonviolence and self-sacrifice and laying down your life for your neighbor rather than destroying your neighbor's life for your benefit. Interesting. Yeah. So Very in that sense, you can be a part of the kingdom of heaven to some extent, you know, you can debate about what that means and when you actually die or whatever for another time. But, but the idea of being a part of Jesus' kingdom, you know, if you want to imitate Jesus, then you are a Christian. You know, so you may not have all the things figured out theologically. But if you want to study, it's like, um, it's like, a, it's like a, a Marxist, you know. A Marxist is someone who studies Karl Marx's books and his interpreters and his acolytes. And it dedicates his life to executing what he believes to be Karl Marx's vision for the world. So what's a Christian? Someone who studies Jesus' life, sees what he's doing in the world with his project, and says, I want to imitate and be a part of that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So much of evangelical Christianity seems to be based on the belief. And if you believe... Uh, well, what is it, uh, John three sixteen? If you believe in God, and uh, you'll have everlasting life. I don't remember the exact quote, but something along those lines. But you're saying no, it's more about uh, the practice. I think. Would Would you agree with that? I mean, belief is part of it because you have to believe, like belief, and tr and like faith is more like trust. 
So when you say, do you believe in Jesus, what you're saying is, do you trust that the way that Jesus showed you is the way that you should be and live? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a lot of Christians that believe in Jesus, but they want to go to war and starve Russians and Iranians and stuff. Are they really being like Jesus? Are they really trusting that Jesus said, do not resist evil with violence? Yeah. And at the same time, there could be people who do not understand theology correctly because they have a hang-up or they had something happen to them as a kid or their parents or something that's got them in an emotional, psychological hang-up about certain claims about Jesus. But they would lay down their life for their neighbor or their enemy even, turn the other cheek. Are they following? Are they trusting in the way of Jesus? I would say yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, what does that mean about afterlife? That's another topic. We're talking about anthropology. We're talking, you know, you asked me to talk about anthropology, you see? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I, I love that. And, and I, it's something that I'm going to dive deeper on and uh, maybe have you back for another episode at some point in the future. But I'd like to also hit on, you know, before we started recording, you mentioned that you were censored from YouTube and yeah. uh, how that impacted your business quite a bit. And can you share with me a little bit? Do you think that there's some, uh, sacrifice going on there and tell me a little bit about that story and what happened and how you see tech censorship going on right now i don't know if it affected my business because a lot of most of my audience is on the website and the podcast and the radio audience so youtube was a small part of my audience now what it did do is i like i like the live comments that we got on the live chat you know because we would get more activity on the live chat and that was fun to engage in that. So that, that affected the show a little bit. But they really didn't have that big of an effect on the business. What they did have an effect on is censoring life-saving information uh, and groundbreaking things that we were doing with people like Dr. Michael Lasanti, who has been doing groundbreaking work showing how antibiotics can kill cancer stem cells mm. and prevent cancer metastases, you know? which is a huge problem in the current protocol for standard of care for cancer. They don't know how to deal with cancer stem cells, most of those therapies. And they know how to shrink tumors, but they don't know how to actually stop metastasis, metastatic cancer. So Dr. Lasanti is one of the most cited scholars, according to Google, ironically, on Google Scholarship, he's got like 40,000 citations. Wow. 8,000, something like that. Yeah. So when you delete, I'm like one of the only guys in mainstream broadcast, not mainstream, but, you know, broad, I'm in broadcast media. I'm one of the only people that's featured his work outside of, like, technical publication. So when you delete that man's work, you are doing the dumbest, Luddite, fascist, knuckle-dragging stupidity you could ever do. You're literally setting humanity back. You are burning books. You're like, you're the dumb knuckle-dragger that everybody hates in history, you know, because you're the one that's burning a book that could help save children from dying of cancer. That's your, that's on you, YouTube. That's on you, Google. That's what you stand with. And, if, and of course, we know they stand with that. I mean, they stand with fascism and violence of all types. They, they censored Laura Ingram, a conservative, talking to Tulsi Gabbard about criticizing the war effort. They censored that and said that's inappropriate content, you know, on YouTube. Yeah. They're trying to talk about peace instead of escalating war between cousins. It's considered disgusting to the owners of YouTube. 
They don't like life. They don't care about life being sacred. And that's a publisher that, that is stuck in the 20th century. So we've got to figure out how to get past that, you know, and there's a lot of debate. People thought DuckDuckGo was going to do it, and then they said they're going to censor stuff. So it's like, what's you know, who knows what's next? Yeah. Well, and, what do you think? People, it's like the Ring of Sauron. All these people always talk Gitter and Rumble. They all talk a big game. And they're not going to do nothing. And then you'll see that they'll, they'll, they'll when they get certain levels of power, oh, yeah, we'll do a little bit, you know. Because it's that same sacrificial impulse, you know. Should I sacrifice this one for the greater good of my company being able to go bigger and bigger and bigger? Because look at how much we've protected free speech for everybody else. All they're asking is us to sacrifice this one little topic or this one little video or this one channel. If we sacrifice them, you know, it's the same thing Kaiva says. It is better that one channel die than the whole platform perish. Yeah. <laughs> it's that same question over and over again. So. But, you know, to follow Jesus, you're going to be excluded in some way or another. And I'm glad that I live in a society so far that I don't have to be, you know, literally sitting in the uh, pariah island or a trash dump for my views. That it was just a YouTube channel being deleted. Do you see alternatives? That we can preserve the love of personhood enough in our society that people in the next generations can enjoy the same freedoms. Yeah. The question is, how do you preserve that freedom? See, I don't believe it's through elections. I believe it's through technological changes. If we could have ocean water powering our neighborhoods right now with low-temperature nuclear energy, we wouldn't have to worry about these punks. See, we have, to, we have to innovate the state's viciousness out of existence. That's the Christian way, in my opinion. The, the Christian way is the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. The Bible is about technology. The Bible is about advancement. Christianity is about the world can get better than it's ever been before. Christianity is about the idea that there is a future that's better than the past. His, Christianity is about the idea that history is going somewhere, and that it, it's going somewhere based on the radical free agency of human beings imitating the right role models and so hopefully we would imitate the best role model, Jesus, and do wonderful things. See, Jesus gives us the ability to have skepticism for all kinds of sacred cows. See, when I have Dr. Yuan and he's simplified physics, one of the reasons why I'm able to see that is because I understand mimetic theory. Mimetic theory, and more importantly, the Gospels, makes us suspicious about uh bodies of power and institutions that we're supposed to be told are untouchable. And what's more untouchable than physics, theoretical physics? Now, within the theoretical physics community, they'll say, oh, no, we're competing all these different theories. But if you look at it, they're all assuming the basic dogmas of the foundations of the field. They don't touch those. Mm. Um, so what, you know, but we have to be able to have the, the courage to challenge foundational assumptions of these different institutions that we inherit from generations before us. And that's how you're, that's how you're Christian. That's another way of being Christ-like because Jesus did not accept the established dogmas of his time. He upended the lies because he knew that they were founded on mutually excluding uh, common enemies. So, like, for example, you know, there wasn't always a consensus about what is an ad and all these things. It's like what happens is these 
ideas get political currency or corporate power behind them, and then they consult, they cons- they kind of like agree that that's the established statement that we're going to stick with, and we're going to do all of our research based on that model. Like, who's the one that said that that? Like, for example, Doctor, you believes that atoms have a both positive and a negative charge. They're they're dipolar particles. All all particles are made up of dipolar positive and negative charge, like a little magnet. Now, I'm not going to get into whether it's right or wrong, but I guess my question is, we just assume that there are monocharged particles. There's a proton, there's a neutron, there's an electron. When you look into where that came from, it was an assumption they just kind of baked into their discovery of two charges. They just assumed there's two charges, therefore there must be two separate particles carrying those distinct charges. Instead of why, why is it not just why is it not just positive and negative of the same particle? You know, so what I'm saying is sometimes that we, we assume these things because it makes sense on some level, and then we build a whole artifice down the road from that, and we're like, well, hey, it has some vague explanatory power, so there's no reason to go back and relook at some of this down here, the foundation. But the foundation's skewed, and it's making you have a skewed, blurry vision of what's possible technologically. And if you if you fix the foundation, then you can get a more accurate map that will give you a better picture of what you're looking at and give you better insight into what to test for in labs and scientific experiments. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm understanding your your lens that you view the world in and I mean Jesus it, when it comes, when you're viewing everything through Jesus's lens, I think he, I mean he questioned everything about the dogma of his day and said, you know, you you don't have to follow these specific rules like the Pharisees do. And I think you're taking that to every area of inquiry, whether it's physics, medicine, all these different things. And you're saying, hey, it's Jesus said it's okay to to talk about different things and to challenge the leaders of your day. So uh, yeah, I mean, I I really like that approach. And it's not just that. It's not that he's saying don't don't challenge him. He's also saying like it's based on scapegoating. Mm. Because if you look at the people who have challenged, like look at Pons and Fleischmann, they created the the first discovery of cold fusion in 1989. Have you ever heard of them? No. Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischmann. Look at how they were scapegoated out of society. Stanley Pons is still hiding in France. He was one of the best chemists of his time. But because he said that. Fusion could happen at low temperature. It challenged the sacred cows of nuclear fusion and physics and all that, and they had to. So they 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 they, they scapegoated. They raised them up as someone who had challenged Olympics of the Olympus, and then they, the media turned on them and banished them as a disgrace. So that's a scapegoat mechanism. It's not literally blowing something up physically, right? But it's a social scapegoat mechanism that protects a field from competition, right? Because if someone can make tabletop nuclear energy, then why do you need billions of dollars of perpetual grants to do your big giant reactors? Mm. Yeah. See how that works? (laughs) So you got all these people competing for nuclear fusion, and they're all using a map that's not accurate to test for it that requires high temperature. Somebody else that says, no, you can actually do that at low temperature. And they're like, no, that's a disgrace. And then they have they have difficulties trying to replicate it. But it's been replicated, but there's no money in it really because it kind of upsets a lot of the frame of of 
where the power is and the money train is, you know, where the money flow is going. So. Yeah. So that's just that, that train of epistemological humility is what I'm thinking is, is important for Christians to, to embrace. Yeah. So when, you, when you are told that you have to eat vegetable oils instead of saturated fats, have some epistemological humility to say, maybe, how do we know what that saying is true? How do we know that? Because yeah. a lot of times these things that are considered settled science are just political science. Right. You know, Ansel Keys was the guy who politically, you know, made a real big attack against saturated fat and allowed for vegetable oils to come about. So, you know, people, people's whole lives are ruined because of that. guy. You know, it's not just that guy, but it's just like we think if it's in the nutrition standards, it's because it's been really finely observed. It's been really studied so meticulously. Don't worry about it. The experts figured it out. And those experts are actually Pharisee or Sadducee priests. And they're excluding sometimes violently and viciously anybody who upsets their order. And that's what if you're if you're thinking like a Christ, then you're if you're thinking like Christ, you're gonna you're gonna have those kind of frameworks to to have that kind of frame. That doesn't mean that you go off into conspiracies and every stupid alternative theory, because Christians have to tell the truth. So it has to be presented with your whatever your alternate explanation is. It needs to be extremely uh, fine tuned logic and evidence and so forth, right? Yeah, you don't just just map up weird esoteric stuff and. Then you're getting into other religious ideas. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, I, I appreciate you spending nearly an hour yeah. with me today. Thank and you. It's it's been great having you. Where do people go from here if they're interested in more of your work or learning more about Rene Girard? Where do, where would you point people to? I, they could check out. There's a five part CBC Radio interview of Rene Girard online. Just type in CBC Radio Rene Girard, and there's like a five hour, five part series with him. That's really good interviewing him. And I recommend people check that out before they read a book so they can just get a good quick, you know, five hours is less time than a book usually. And um, and then my website is a neighborschoice.com. Our show airs live 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time weekdays. Um, and a neighborschoice.com has both articles that we publish on our team as well as our daily radio show and then our um, online-only podcast uh, where we get into um, deeper dive discussions. And you can go to David, search for David Gronoski on whatever podcast platform you like, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever. We're on all of them mostly. And um, you can subscribe there and rate it, review it. All that helps to you know expand the audience. To new to new uh, new people. Excellent. Well, I'll put links to all that in the show notes. Uh, David, thanks for coming on the call today. Thank you.